Ignatius Press and the Augustine Institute present The Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Welcome back to the Form Book Club. We're taking the last session on Real Philosophy for Real People by Father Robert McTigg, S.J., whom we have with us at the lower right of your screen as our guest this evening, this afternoon, or this morning, whenever you're watching this. Uh, and I'm going to turn this over to the very competent uh, interlocutor, uh, Joseph Pierce. Well, thank you, Father, for that vote of confidence. Well, it's, it's, it's great to have you, Father McTagg. Um, obviously, you and I go back many years, uh, indeed, with Father Fezio back to Armin Rear University in Florida, um, probably 15 years or so back when I first knew you now. So it's good to see you again. Uh, we well, spoke well, you li likewise, we haven't seen each other in person since the Courage Conference in Chicago uh, oh. some years ago. Absolutely, yeah, and uh, yeah. we've spoken on your radio show once or twice. But yes, it's good to see, yes, good to see uh, your yeah, face. Yeah, likewise, likewise. Well, I mean, if to, to, to begin discussing your book, I mean, I I like the way you um, interwove the civil anecdotal in with the analytical, so to speak. And there's no better way of showing this than the way you choose to begin the book with a parable. There are not many books of philosophy begin with a, a parable and basically it's a dialogue between two people al and fred we won't read the whole thing obviously but at, at the end of it uh al who's really sort of the passive character here the, the receptor um says to fred are you saying that morality is meaningless and then fred responds certainly philosophical accounts of mortality in light of the anomalies i've just listed are meaningless the history of philosophical moral re reflection is a collection of quaint and embarrassing conceits. A systematic, coherent account of the moral life just can't be achieved. If you want guidance in morality, just ask yourself before acting. What is the loving thing to do? That is about as re reliable as any other attempt at a moral theory, and it is a lot more concise. And then you end with how should Al respond to Fred? So the first question I'd like to ask is how would Father McTague respond to Fred? Well, you know, the parable was actually the final exam for my ethics class. Uh, and you, if you under, if you paid attention for the class, which is no sure thing uh, when I was teaching, uh, you, you would understand that right, we have all the tools to work through very significant hurdles and moral reflection and begin to see why we get it wrong. I think Fred is, is a bit disingenuous. Uh, he's not saying, well, we can't have a, a systematic account of the moral life, more is the pity. He just says, well, if you're one of those people, one of those system builders, well, then, you know, muzzle tough, knock yourself out, uh, love. You know, it, it's a lot shorter than, than building, uh, you know, castles in the sky. I, I think that's all wrong. You know, Paul Weiss would say, 
if I'm right, here's where I'm right. If I'm wrong, here's where I'm wrong. At least let's make an effort that's worthy of a refutation. I, I think I, I, I've done that. The way you would begin to answer, Fred, is say, no, exhortations to love are, are not enough. Even if we could come to a common agreement of what love is, there are all these things that we're all too familiar with, weakened wills and darkened intellect and, and bad company and confusion that prevent the inevitable flourishing of love uh, that work against the sufficiency of merely exhorting people to love. So let's get busy with ordinary human experience. Let's learn from the best. Let's look at what's around and within us. And we can come to very confident conclusions. And I know this to be true because every page is battle tested 20 years in the classroom, mostly with unwilling undergraduates. <laughs> Well, I mean, uh, I, I, I hand over to to my colleagues in just just a moment. But the the one thing, but from what you've just said, then would you say that obviously love would be the answer if we were able to love? In other words, that the moral moral theology and moral philosophy is based upon defective love because that's the best we can manage, and therefore it's working with the defects, which is where we begin to work out how we make love happen as as yes. far as possible under the circumstances. Yes, every every person starts from the same place. We're on our best day. The very best we can say is imperfectly, I offer you my imperfect love. And that needs to be complemented by the statement, because of who God is and because of who you are to God, I choose to love and serve you. If you bring those two together, you've got the foundation of a civilization that's also open to revelation. Well, there is one circumstance in which love is enough, and that is beatitude. So once we're in heaven, we will not need Father Mateus' book, nor any of the press books, as a matter of fact. And all there will be is love incarnate in ourselves, in Christ, uh, in everywhere. But right. until, we until get that there, time, until that time, we need other kind of help. help. And if we don't have these helps, we may not get there. Right. Yeah, and again, the, the book's called a toolkit. I mean, another way you can look upon it is an armory or an arsenal because, you know, we are living here in time in the church militant, the church at war, and we need the weapons to fight it. And that's what this book does, I think. It gives us the weapons. Yes. Yeah, I, well, you know, Ephesians uh, Ephesians, and, and 1 Peter 5, Ephesians 6, I take those things very seriously. And, of course, St. Ignatius had a very martial sense of the service of, of Christ also. So yes, the toolkit, the the arms the arms and armor, we need both. And probably if, if Father McTague zoomed out, we'd see his mace and his uh, scimitar. <laughs> he, he has many weapons like that. Uh, you know, uh, I you did a great job too, not just the as Father, as Joseph Pierce has said, the, the anecdotes and analysis, but also the charts. I mean, I think that there weren't there weren't that many charts, but each each one of those really gave an overview of of, of many many pages of explanation. Uh, but it, it, part of that was in looking at the different deontological and theological theories of uh, methodologies of ethics. You had in proportionalism there, and you had in situation ethics. And mm. I lived through years when those were the rage; those were the latest thing; those were going to be the new moral theology. But mm -hmm. are they prominent? Anymore, I mean, are there proportionalists out there that so designate themselves and situationists? Well, the story goes, since Veritatis Splendor at Fides et Ratio, John Paul got rid of all that. 
I, I would say that even as as active schools of reflection and inquiry, there, there's a residue there. But really, they're, they're part of the human condition. Everyone is tempted to be a situationalist, a moral relativist. Oh, sure, there may be moral lies, but in my special case, it doesn't apply. And, and a proportionalist is, is really just a relativist with a PhD. He wants to wrap himself in the mantle of scholarship to make excuses for his bad behavior. Because look, we're, we're all sinners. I, I, I certainly am. Uh, as, as schools of thought, I, I think they may have been weakened. They, they don't dominate the field the, the way that they used to at one time. Uh, I think that we're trying to recover the natural law tradition. I think we're trying to re to recover uh, the the work of the church fathers, for example, uh, in, in in moral theory a, as well. But we we do have a fight on our hands, and we are fighting outnumbered. Well, you keep up with it with the with the uh, you know the, what's being written on these things. I do not. But if one were to go to a secular university or even a private non-Catholic university and take a course in ethics, I presume they still have ethics. It right. sounds like it sounds like ethics, so they probably have it. Uh, but <laughs> well, what, well, yeah, postmodern relativism. What, what, what would they be teaching? Do you think? Well, yeah, it, it would be some form of postmodernist relativism. Uh, it would be closer to, to group therapy. You know, you share your feelings and you speak your truth and we all nod approvingly and we just take turns and we know whose turn it is to talk about who's holding the box of Kleenex. And, and that passes for moral reflection uh, these days. Uh, Peter Singer, uh, who hasn't met a human he isn't willing to kill, though I think he, he would be reluctant to hurt a porpoise or a baby seal, he's considered a thoughtful man in current discourse today. Uh, you don't have to be Catholic to, to benefit from my book. It, it certainly helps. But to say, like, if you suspect that something is seriously wrong and you want to be able to put your finger on where it's wrong, why it's wrong, and how to answer it, then, then this, this is the book for you. It's a way of boosting your mental and your moral immune system. Vivian. Yes. Oh, I, I would like to know, Father... When you did teach this as a course, was there a sort of before and after that you saw among your students? And how would you describe that? Well, there, there were the students who already assumed that they, they knew everything. Uh, and, you know, they would point out the window and talk about life in the real world and so on. Uh, there, there were also some kids who, who wanted to do the right thing, who knew that their souls were being contested for, but but were help, but just assume that they that they were helpless, and I said, no, you don't have to be helpless. You don't have to surrender to the powers and principalities that want to eat your soul. And you know, by Thanksgiving, I had students say, Father, I can't wait to go home to Thanksgiving break and confront Uncle Fred and Cousin Mildred about their nonsense. I'm ready. I would have students come in and would say, hey, Father, I was at the pub the other night and someone was waxing eloquent about contraception and I, I put the smack down and I said, see, <laughs> you know, in a matter of weeks, you can become an anti-relativist ninja who's, who's always ready and can't be surprised. So if, if they opened the door to it the slightest, they, they grabbed it and, and they ran with it because the book is addressing what is fundamentally human. We, deep down, we really do want to know. We really do want to be sure. And sadly, we live in a context where it's all too easy for too many things to get in the way. But Joseph Pierce and I were recently reviewing a manuscript for a joint publication by Ignatius Press and Augustine Institute. It was quite a good manuscript in general, but I almost choked on this paragraph where the author said, 
Well, uh, the Catholic Church is moral teaching. It uses the ploy of natural law, uh, but it's really a religious uh, position. And as I know, I, I circled it, I choked, and I scanned it and sent it to Joseph because it's not a ploy. It's not as if we're trying to, or you were trying to, this book somehow insert Catholic dogma into a reflection on philosophy. Right. But, but the fact is that, uh, yes, the Catholic Church defends natural law just like it defends reason. Yes. Uh, but that's not to say that revelation can be reduced to reason at right. all. So right. What, how, what do you think? I mean, how is natural law, how effective is it to, re, to refer to that today in today's culture? Do people want to listen to it, talk about natural law? Well, uh, people who are not academics certainly do. <laughs> uh, that's why, you know, Paul Weiss said philosophers let theories get in the way of what they and everyone else know. You've got people who are absolute skeptics and relativists who know which number to call in the HR department if their direct deposit doesn't come through. Uh, so a lot, a lot of these folks are, are, are just frauds. Uh, natural law is something that is accessible to anyone. And the irony now is in the 1890s, Leo Thirteenth writing about Christian philosophy is trying to define faith. A hundred years later, John Paul II is trying to defend reason. So we, we've come that far. But I, I would say 99% of the time, uh, people who, who have an understanding of what natural law really is and what it can do and not its academic caricature say, oh my gosh, I wish someone had told me this a long time ago. It's all so clear. I don't have to fly blind. So I, I think that the, the great gift of the Catholic Church is to be the guardian and the steward and, and the caregiver, if you will, for, uh, for the natural moral law. And we're impoverished wherever natural moral law is not well served. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, well, let, let me, um, I, you said something, you may have been being ironic, Father, and there's nothing wrong with that. No, I've I mean, been known just, to. <laughs> and I just might, might, might have missed the irony. But you did say that um, since, I think I've, if I've got the, 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 the encyclicals correct, since Veritatis Splendor and Peter Setbazio, uh, that, that those issues of relativism uh, within the church have been solved. Is, is, that, is that just naive for me to believe that you weren't being ironic? Or do you think that those two encyclicals actually did some practical good within the church? No, no, I, I, I think they did. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've done some work in, in seminaries, and there are seminaries who've made honest efforts to, to clear the ground and to have a more firm foundation for, for moral theology. I don't think that moral realism swept Catholic higher education off its feet. In, in the 1990s. I, I really don't know. We wouldn't be in the pickle that, that we're in right now, and we wouldn't be getting the kind of nonsense that, that we're, we're, we're getting right now, uh, sadly. So uh, John Paul named the, the several elephants in the room and gave us the opportunity to put the elephants back in the zoo where they belong rather than stampeding through the villages. But there hasn't been a lot of enthusiasm. You see, the appeal of relativism is we make a deal. I will keep silent about your bad behavior if you agree to keep silent about my bad behavior, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. 
Uh, and we also agree that if someone like Father Fessio has a bad attitude and doesn't want to go along with our conspiracy, then we cancel him or, or denounce him. And, and the, the reason why the students liked what I presented in this book was then they, were, they realized they were not helpless. They didn't have to be bullied. You know, we'd watch videos of Dinesh D'Souza debating Michael Shermer, who's supposed to be kind of the, the Bill Maher of polite atheism. And they said, Father, we, we, we can take this guy down. We don't have to be afraid. And I said, yes, you know, truth is a good thing to have on, on your side. You can be exploratory, you can be humble, but you can be a joyous advocate for, for the truth. And presented that way, uh, this, the students warmed to the project very quickly. Well, uh, if this book is a toolbox for real people living today, uh, how would someone use this toolbox uh, when confronted with uh, transgenderism? Well, oh gosh, that's a, that's actually a, a simple one. I know transgenderism is the latest ideology to be gaining a, a lot of, of traction. And the claim is that uh, that gender or sex, male or female, it is, is a, a form of anthropological reductionism. It's just a role. You know? And if male or female don't mean anything, why do you insist that I acknowledge you as male or female? Right. And, and then we add that to uh, same-sex attraction. Why is it, on the one hand, I, I, I was born that way, is the mic drop, unanswerable conversation ender, and I was born that way is the completely wide open, uh, clear plane on, on the other. Uh, and it begins to break down very quickly. Some, you need about a minute and a half of serious reflection to say that, yes, some people very rarely have uh, physiological difficulties. Some people have genuine confused and very terrible pain, but we don't have to completely rewrite society in response to those very exceptional cases. Or, we could just start with what's more really obvious. Right, right. Yeah. Society is something which is mutable, and reality ultimately is something which isn't. So it's not just society, it's reality. Yes, yeah, I mean, reality is not up for grabs. Well, the problem is that uh, the language has been hijacked. And so we need to take the language back. So, for example, sex and gender are not the same thing. And so uh, the honest transgender ideologues will tell you that sex actually is a biological reality that is fixed. Gender, however, meaning how you express your sexual self, something fluid, hence the transgender, you know, that, 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 that these roles, as you, at your description of anthropological reductionism was just brilliant. That's the tool in the toolbox for dealing with this question. Right. Because it's a sleight of hand to say, okay, we accept the biolo biological reality of sex, however, gender is fluid. Light of hand, because what they're not willing to do is talk about, well, what is the connection yes, between that's, that, that's exactly biological right. sex and gender? Right. And while you can have, you know, men in Saudi Arabia wearing dresses, I'm sure they would be abhorred at my using that descriptor, but I mean, long flowing robes, right? That's how gender, the male sex gets expressed in gender identity there. And here they wear something else. So 
we can all admit that there is a certain cultural relativism involved in gender expression. But until we're willing to go back to using the language properly, we're going to no, no. keep getting gummed up in there. Right. We're, we, we, we get mugged. Uh, we, we get this. We're walking down a busy street texting. If we if we think we can't pay attention to the language, there is a very significant difference between sex and gender. And yeah, look, I, you know, as a Jesuit, I've, I've worked in, in 30 countries. I, I, I know what cultural differences uh, really are. But, but if you get into the bedrock of, of the anthropology I, I've laid out, just as with sacramental action and symbols and vessels, we don't set the rules for that. We receive them. We discover them. So too for the basics of human nature. It means something to be an embodied male rather than an amorphous individual who incidentally has a, a maleish body for now. Those, those, th that use of language is very different. We are embodied from conception as male or female, and that reveals something about the nature of reality, the nature of God, and the nature of humanity. A and we used to know that until fairly recently. Right. I would say, if I say one thing, one thing I like about your book is the way you do, as I said at the beginning, weave uh, anecdote mm -hmm. into analysis. And for me, that literature, and you quote literature at various times, is a perfect way of uh, exposing uh, the fallacy of this invention of the self. And you could use numerous uh, examples. The picture Dorian Gray by, Dorian Gray would be, by Oscar Wilde would be one. But there's a book by uh, Joris Colquismans, who's a uh, French decadent. Uh, and, you know, the book is, um, is Aribur. And uh, basically, this, the, the, the protagonist is so wealthy, and all he's interested in is sensual pleasure, or sensual experience, actually, because in the end, pain and suffering is something he also needs to experience. Um, and so he does everything. You name it, he does it. I mean, literally, what Priestman's is doing here, well, let's, let's put all the cards on the table. Let's allow ourselves to reinvent ourselves in numerous different ways. Um, and at the end of the book, there's, there's a creed de cure to a God he doesn't even know exists because it le leads to misery. So the whole idea that just doing our own thing makes us happy is a lie. And then, again, that's, that's a large part. We can prove that philosophically, but we can also prove it by just telling stories, including real stories. We know many people who have wrecked their lives by, by, by living this way, you know? Uh, no, if, if we always did what we want, we'd all be dead or in jail uh, by now. I'm not given to quoting Ayn Rand, but she did say you can avoid reality, but you can't avoid the consequences of avoiding reality. And I think the consequences of avoiding reality have been writ large in our culture for at least 50, 60 years. I, I know Father Fessio rhapsodizes about the golden era of the 1950s. I wasn't there, but he does tell charming stories about it. But since that time, I, I don't think we have been progressing from glory to glory. And this is the book that says, you know, I've been hearing things that aren't quite right. Now I know why they're not right. And mm -hmm. now I know what, what to do about it, either in individual conversations, my family life, or the different communities I find myself in. And what is your next book going to be on? Well, it's about, we were just talking about that before we, we started recording. It is called Christendom Lost and Found, Meditations for a Post-Post-Christian Age. 
my uh, elevator pitch is this. Since the French Revolution in 1789, we've tried in the West to organize our public and private life without Christ. The body count is of sufficient height and depth, but I want to suggest we need to reconsider. Not going back to some golden era that never existed, but learning with humility and gratitude the, the things that we used to know as, as a Christian community back in the day and applying it in our own time. And where this book was architectonic and structured, this is just a collection of, of, of my ruminations. You're, you're not going to find a, a lot of uh, footnotes. It, it's a lot more conversational. But wasn't this culture that we're trying to go back and retrieve basically created by white males? Well, they had a whole lot to do with it, truth be told. Uh, you know, Christianity emerged from, from Jerusalem and, and went through Greece, and, uh, and Pope Benedict said uh, in the Regensburg lecture, it was no accident that the Holy Spirit led the church through the home of the Logos in Greece and then into the West. But precisely because uh, Christendom is so divine and so human, it really is for everyone. We're not saying that everyone should wear a Celt or Lederhosen or, or drink warm beer, heaven forfend, uh, but rather that the good news about God and man that Christians always used to know confidently until very recently, that really is for everyone. The roots are in a time and place. The fruits are meant for all. And, and, and the fruits are the dignity of the human person is yes. the of grace. Yes. And, 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 and when you take that away, when, when we can decide who we are, we can also become tribal. Yes. Uh, and, that, and that can be tribal in terms of race. It's Christianity which removes that with the insistence upon the dignity of every human person, regardless of the color of their skin. That, that, that's exactly right. And this is why I think more than ever, we need Christendom to retrieve that thing that we lost, because we're going to get into squabbling and, and, and tribalism. And remember, in, in hell, there's no charity. Eventually, everyone turns on everyone. There is no happy, settled day to look forward to, whether it's the law of the jungle or it, it's Leviathan. And, and I think since 1789, we've got case after case after case, the micro, the macro, everything in between. You know, without Christ, there's chaos. Something else Bellick was right about. And, yeah, and the, other, and the other thing is, I mean, I, I don't need to, we need to wrap, wrap up in a moment, is that the whole idea of philosophical systems being constructs is itself uh, a product of the enlightenment which is very much part of that system which is which is white and male so that the, the, their very philosophy whether it's Karl Marx or Hegel or Nietzsche uh, is rooted in the same white male thing that, uh, that the rest of so-called civilization is they should get outside their own box well, well, yes, people people should be leaving campuses more often and, and talk to people who are doing radical things like, say, starting families and small businesses. I think oh, that would do everyone a lot of good. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Father McTague, for joining us uh, for the discussion of your wonderful book. Uh, folks, next week we'll start with Russell Shaw's book, Eight Popes in the Crisis of Modernity, and we'll begin with the introduction of the first three chapters. Thanks, everyone. Uh, God bless Thank you, you all, and uh, see you next week on the Formed Book Club. If you enjoyed this discussion, please help spread the word about the Formed Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.